Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Hello and welcome to the second of two special episodes of Constructive Voices as we bring you our post-COP26 roadmap for the built environment sectors. We held our first event on the 24th of November and if you haven't listened to the first special episode yet, go back and listen to that first because you'll hear our Constructive Voices journalist Henry MacDonald talking to Victoria Kate Burrows, Advancing Net Zero Director at the World Green Building Council. Victoria stayed with us to talk to and address questions from our esteemed panel of guests. Panel, welcome. I'll ask each of you to say a little bit about yourself and then ask your question. And so we're going to go, first of all, to Claire Wansbury. Good morning. Thank you, Steve. So I'm Claire Wansbury. I'm Associate Director of Ecology at Atkins, which is a major worldwide engineering and environment consultancy. We work a lot on big infrastructure projects, but all sorts of schemes across the world. I'm particularly focused on the UK. And as an ecologist, hello, Victoria, I've got a biodiversity focused question for you. The background to the question is something you touched on when you were speaking earlier, the fact that we're living in a time of global emergencies of climate change and biodiversity loss. And those two issues are intertwined. If we try and solve one, we'll fail for ourselves and the world if we ignore the other. And the path to net zero is an essential one for us to follow. But it's part of wider action that's needed to respond to these emergencies. And in relation to biodiversity for anyone on the call who's not really thought about the challenges there. What's going on globally through human action is literally a mass extinction event. So something our planet hasn't experienced since the time the dinosaurs became extinct. And that's an incredibly daunting challenge, but obviously it's a time where there's also opportunities to take action that can turn areas from being nature poor to nature rich. So with all of that, where we need to move quickly into a phase where we're reducing harm to nature, but also actively restoring it, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how those working in the built environment can make a positive contribution. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Claire. Lovely to meet you. And thank you for your question. I'm so pleased that you brought biodiversity into this conversation. Um, I mean, the, the the Global Green Building Council movement has for, for, in some cases, decades operated with different rating tools and different schemes and, and frameworks that have incorporated biodiversity, some might call it ecological value in the case of, of, um, of the BRE and, and BREAM. And um, in this shift to more positive impacts from projects, it's really having its moment, I think, um, because we are asking uh, developments and buildings not only to think about at a building level um, the impact of the buildings on the biodiversity of the of the site itself but also how it can contribute to that positive impact and if we're going to be developing buildings then we need to also be enhancing communities and biodiversity as well uh, addressing emissions from the built the buildings or, or from the built environment can help drive the sustainable development goals not just the climate action goal but i think around 11 of the 17 goals can be directly impacted from taking action in the built environment uh, such as low carbon energy transition enhancing nature supporting adaptation and resilience and so over the past few decades as the green building councils have really worked to try and embed that within some of their tools we've seen some some brilliant outcomes um and and it is you know we we it is incorporated into so many of those various tools. Even though we have specific tools at the moment that focus on carbon, uh, they are often embedded within wider conversations that include uh, biodiversity. And um, one of my favorite examples is uh, is in Singapore, the uh, the the Park Royal on, on Pickering in, in Singapore. That Singapore has a um, Green Mark certification scheme. We've all got slightly different names. The one in Singapore is called Green Mark. And they give recognition on when you replace the footprint of the building to a certain ratio of greenery within the space. So, you know, it's kind of driving 
the, the garden city um, of Singapore that, that buildings aren't just built on their footprint, you know, the space where they're being built, but they replace the amount of land they've used within the space itself. And that's why you see trees on roofs and within the spaces and lovely green walls and things like that and really enhancing nature, um, roof gardens, um, sort of kitchen gardens, natural gardens, sort of really enhancing the, the biodiversity as well. Park Royal on Pickering, uh, it's within Green Mark. They uh, apply points or they kind of recognise when a building replaces the ratio of up to six to one. So the space that it's taken, its footprint of the building, replacing six times that with green space within the building itself. And so on a scale of from one to one up to six to one, it gives you put that points. Um, you get more points towards your certification scheme. Park Royal and Pickering achieved a ratio of 12 to one. So they went beyond even what was set as a requirement, which was going beyond what they needed to do as part of that development. And again, I, I sort of reinforced the setting the question, right? Saying, you know, what can we do with this building to enhance biodiversity? How can we use this community to create green spaces and incorporate um, biodiversity more than ever before we our relationship with buildings is changing the impact of our buildings on our health and our need to um, to engage with green spaces is absolutely happening in, in real time. So I think this will become an even more prevalent part of the conversation. But um, it's it, it shows that, that it's possible if, again, if the right questions are asked. So I guess the answer to my question is, is hopefully increasingly. Uh, and uh, and yeah, we need to, to rise to this challenge. It's a complete transformation we need in the way that we design and build buildings and um we're, we're seeing more and more of these concepts coming into it's that consideration too brilliant victoria thank you very much and thank you claire for your question as well next let's introduce dr darshil shah morning darshil thank you uh nice to meet you victoria i'm darshil shah i'm an associate professor in materials at the department for architecture at the university of cambridge and i'm also a material scientist researcher at the center for natural material innovation where our focus is on embodied emissions from the built environment, uh, and particularly how we may be able to use plant-based materials like engineered timber, bamboo, hempcrete, and hemp and uh, linen-based materials, for example, and other biomaterials as alternatives to both structural, non-structural materials in the built environment, particularly concrete, steel, uh, and some plastics as well. Um, so my question for you, Victoria, is, uh, with COP27 in a year's time and the ongoing in the UK, the Environmental Audit Committee's uh, inquiry into the sustainability of the built environment, uh, what actual practical steps should governments be taking to promote the greater use of biomaterials? And if you think um, they are really the solution? Uh, as a, as a programme at World Green Building Council, as I say, we needed to, to shift from green buildings that do a bit less bad to decarbonizing buildings. And we focused on operational carbon first. And then we published a report called Bringing Embodied Carbon Up Front in 2019, which was really trying to bring a really strong emphasis or greater awareness around the challenge of embodied carbon, because there's a there's a time factor to this, right? You can, you can build a building or you can improve the way an existing building performs operationally. You can't do anything about the emissions that went into building that building so whilst we are continuing to build all these new buildings we we need to be taking account of the emissions that um that go into building them in the first place um what we call for in the report is greater access and availability to low carbon material options so that means in the short term looking at what's available and including things like bio-based materials materials um, in terms of meeting that requirement for buildings with lower carbon alternatives, but also for the heavy industries to decarbonize their production processes so that they are on carbon terms equivalent. We can't we can't sort of simply not build buildings, but we also can't simply not build buildings with concrete or steel either. So there's a kind of dual call for action there. So if countries did want to favor a, a particular material over another, they could create procurement criteria for bio-based materials. I don't know if you've seen the one um, from France. France is set to require that all new public buildings must be made from at least 50% from wood or from other sustainable materials from 2022, as it's pushing for a more kind of sustainable urban development model. And they've already pledged 
a greater use of natural materials such as wood, straw and hemp and that other buildings any higher than eight stories that are being built for the Paris Olympics in 2024 must be made entirely of timber. So there are governments out there that are recognising that certainly in the short term there needs to be some more responsible and sustainable methods of construction from materials that there is a role for for bio-based materials Um, but we also recognize the need to champion for that in addition to decarbonization of heavy industries that there's still that sustainable model because the transition to entirely bio-based materials would present other challenges too. I have a follow-on question uh, not related to biomaterials but related to education and training because you did mention training as well and I wondered, yeah, what the role of education might be in uh, decarbonizing the built environment. Absolutely. So I'm a, a former architecture student myself, right? and um, it's really because of my degree at Nottingham University incorporating environmental design into the degree that led me on this path into my career. But it was an additional module as part of, you know, a course that you had to opt into, right? And those students that I was on that course with then are now designing today's buildings that will be built in 2030. You know, we we design to the standards of today, but the buildings might not be finished until 2030. And by then our our kind of standards of what we expect are likely to have changed. So education is a huge part of this challenge, both from right from the kind of early stages of of architecture design students and engineers um, into the kind of retraining or re-emphasis of, of the sorts of, of shifts we need from the existing building stock. And there's a lot of work across the climate curriculum being applied across universities and professional bodies because we need to bring this language into every single project that is happening across the world. It's extremely important. Um, it, it does require a, a massive shift in the priorities and the way that buildings have been designed in, in the past. We've inherited a stock of buildings that that aren't fit for the future. So as you say, they need to be they need to be um renovated and improved. Some of the, the kind of the um the schemes that offer grants for installation of different technologies, particularly within the UK, but across other countries as well, haven't had the sort of uptake that you would really hope for. Um, but where there has been really strong levels of applications in terms of accessing those grants, the actual delivery and the the execution of those projects as a percentage was quite low and that highlights to us the skills gap that really needs to be addressed if we're going to address both how new buildings are designed but also how existing buildings are renovated and optimized that's um a huge opportunity there for the market. Victoria, thank you very much. And thank you, Darshal, for your question as well. Darshal's a previous guest on the Constructive Voices yeah. podcast. So if you if you go back, you will find his episode there. It's well worth a listen. Uh, next, yeah. with a question, uh, we're welcoming another of our panellists. Vicente Wyatt, morning. Good morning. As you may know, I was chief architect of the city of Barcelona during four years. You see the mantra that we wrote here in the year 2011, Barcelona will be a self-sufficient city, uh, etc., in a zero emissions metropolis. So I would say that this mantra was for me very clear uh, since many years ago, and now it's very good that the European Union somehow has defined this new standard to become uh, zero emissions. What, uh, about what Victoria said, there is something that I am worried because uh, she says something that the net zero is a journey. You know, net zero is a number, you know? It's like uh, when you are in the, um, let's say, speed regulation in a highway uh, to have 120 kilometers per hour is the limit. And if you are about that limit is something you will be punished. So that means that today what happened, I think, is that we come from a culture about sustainability that is very wide and very open, and very, I would say, good intentions, but without clear numbers. And the good thing about the net zero is that it's defining a good number. So I think that Henry did a very good comment on, can we do a standard for the net zero? And the answer is yes, for sure. 
Uh, I think that, uh, Victoria, and this is for you, I think that your explanation has been very honest, but I will tell you the truth. I, I has never been a great fan on the Green Building Council. Uh, the impact of the, for example, the LEED certification in Barcelona is very low because you need to pay a lot of money to get a certification. And that means that only luxury buildings are only able to do that because in order to do some marketing. So the question is, uh, the Green Building Council is thinking to review their standard that has been the standard for the last years in order to uh, to transform the net zero in the real standard and not in a journey. This will be my, my question. So thank you very much for your question and, and really useful to, to hear your insights. So thank you for that. Um, I'm not sure what the, what the current number is. I think it's around 14 Green Building Councils that have launched uh, zero carbon certifications for their buildings. Um, I don't think GVC España is one yet, but I yeah we can find out if they're if they're working one again because of, I think you've touched on the um, the issues that I mentioned earlier about how you know having a, a global standard is challenging because you need the local the local applications and really help to understand what the local requirements are. All of those zero carbon or net zero carbon certifications from the green building councils are performance based which is the difference to sort of historically green building councils and, and green building rating schemes that are very prescriptive, um, which is really useful in terms of increasing knowledge, awareness, you know, encouraging a building to consider a project um, team to consider enhancing biodiversity. For example, they may not have considered that before, but if they're required to achieve a level of certification under a green building standard, then it asks them to consider it within their project. And that's really the intention of those programs. So over the past, uh, I guess, five years since Advancing Net Zero has been at World Green Building Council, we've been encouraging GBCs to think about how they can incorporate the net zero concepts into their schemes. So LEED Zero, for example, does not require you to achieve LEED Platinum, but it requires you to achieve some level of LEED certification so that you consider that whole holistic approach, but that you also achieve on a performance basis based on your metered data of how the building actually performs a net zero emissions balance over the course of a year. So we're really, again, seeing that shift, that transition, that a green building standard wasn't enough, and now we need to be moving towards the net zero terminology. Um, and again, the local green building councils are, are supporting in what that means for the different markets. Um, within Europe, there's more of a focus because of the energy, uh, the European Commission, the Energy Performance of Buildings Declaration, and now Sustainable Performance of Buildings Declaration, that these things are coming into policy more quickly than in other countries. And so the focus of the Green Building Councils in Europe is, is advocacy um, around responding to and, and calling for regulations to be um, increased within particular markets at the European Sorry, level, Victoria, but also at the country. Thank you. And are you thinking to reduce the fees in order to get the certification, in order to be able to use that money for the building itself? Because to do a zero emission building costs more money than the startup buildings. And that means that uh, people might decide if they want to put more timber in the building or they want to get a certification. So how is connected the idea of getting certification that costs a lot of money in relation with the extra investment that you need to do in order to do the zero emissions building? Sure. I mean, uh, the, the, the certification fees is, is very much a local Green Building Council question, I'm afraid. Um, but for us, it's about the performance. It's not without our... Our call to action for the industry is not all buildings in the world to be certified. It's all buildings in the world to perform at zero carbon. So that's, you know, for the various project teams to determine some organizations and, and projects really value the, the certification. Sometimes it's a requirement of policy. Um, but the for us, it's about the outcome. It's that those decisions have been made at the right stages of the of the project process and that you're achieving a zero carbon building, whether it's certified or not. Victoria, thank you. And Vicente, thank you so much for your questions as well. Next, let's welcome Dr. Wendy Jones. Wendy, morning. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for inviting me along. Um, I'm um, a chemist by training, but I've worked in, in across the sort of academic industry interface for many, many years. Um, I'm not just a parent, I'm a grandparent as well. Um, working with um, Neil for the last couple of years to try and see how we can influence the industry to reduce plastic 
fantastic. Um, and we're doing this a few ways, just very quickly, looking at engineering changes in the ways of working within the industry. We've got some interesting partnerships developing. We're talking to companies about developing plastic audits for them to help them to look at what their plastic is. But one of the things, one of the easy wins, obviously, is looking at waste and offcuts. And we, we want to look at new and sustainable options, alternatives to plastic, where that's feasible. We all know that plastic's very valuable in many ways in its functionality, but there's lots of issues with the disposal of it. Um, what I'd like to ask, really, is that office and home users have got incredibly used over the last 50 years to on-tap heating, wiring, plastic goods, all the things that you see in your kitchen, your bathroom and all the rest of it, and the ability to replace these fixtures and fittings almost at will, whether it be office redesign, whether it be home redesign. Um, I was interested on comments about the required level of change and also what Pete was just saying about the way we live is changing or the ways we live are changing. But my question, I suppose, is do you think the time has come for a change in our attitudes, not just within the industry, but how the consumers of the construction industry, so to speak, operate, you know, whether we need a, a, a sea change in, in our attitudes to how we live in our buildings. Yeah, that's, thank you so much for your question, Wendy. I think I think you're right. I think um, it is, it, it has to be the time to change. There simply isn't an alternative. You know, we've been talking here about um the huge potential but also the complexity of the sector this really isn't an overnight change it's something that has to be embedded in the way that we design and construct and operate our buildings from you know major real estate portfolios to to our homes and um that that just simply isn't isn't an option for us to continue in the way that we have been if you I suppose if you ask anyone on the street what they can do to reduce their carbon footprint they'd probably tell you uh to to that they stop flying so much, they might eat less meat. Um, they they maybe will cut down on their plastic <coughs> consumption. But collectively, the impact of addressing emissions from the built environment really is enormous and, and outweighs some of those some of those issues. So it's all about it becoming something within the mindset of of consumers. Inherently, the way that our buildings are designed, constructed, and operation and operated is is extremely wasteful. And, you know, some things like like smart meters or, um, you know, the way that that, um, that energy companies are now supplying us our consumer information around how what our consumption habits are will help towards that. But it really feels like the built environment needs its, its single plastic moment, right? The same way that people are, are sort of carrying around their um their coffee mugs and their, their sort of reusable coffee mugs and the reusable plastic uh their reusable water bottles instead of using plastic and really making that conscious shift the same needs to happen for for the built environment and as we say it that goes from policymakers and you know commercial asset owners and operators all the way down to your average homeowner and so um it really does feel like that shift needed now the green building council movement and the green building movement in general has been calling for improvements to energy efficiency standards for for decades, you know, particularly within Europe and, and North America, this has been an issue. This is not a new issue. It's something that's been called for, for for years. There's been people who have been, you know, who have dedicated their entire lives to this. And yet we still don't have regulation that is good enough in terms of energy efficiency. And as I said earlier, it means that buildings and homes are being built to insufficient, in some cases, woefully inadequate levels of standards that will not serve society in the future and that is a that is a big challenge but it is more than a carbon challenge it's a that's a social challenge that's a social problem that the that the governments and policymakers have have contributed to um for us you know we are talking to the to, to the businesses to the policymakers, but you know it's the people who live in leaky homes and have have to experience fuel poverty each winter that you know if we manage to to convert um ceos and businesses to make their real estate assets uh net zero then we won't have done our jobs if people still are living in, in leaky homes right so if we're not able to convince governments and the homeowners based on the kind of 
sort of very technical carbon emissions and energy efficiency data are the kind of the, all the different initiatives that we try to improve people's insulations and their homes and change their boilers um you know how do we convince them right that's that's kind of what is the narrative and how does that need to change whether we're talking to a, a minister or a, or a mayor or a ceo or a homeowner um and i think the big shift is coming through health right we through the the covid pandemic you know the as i said earlier the relationship to the spaces that we occupy and our health is changing people will in undoubtedly uh, reconsider their choices of where they live now as uh, to, to Pete's point um but i think understanding how our buildings affect our health particularly when we choose to spend well either voluntary or involuntary spend so much time in them is is really significant um last week there was a report specifically now to england um there was a new report called the cost of poor housing in england from the uk gbc and from the building research establishment they found that 11% of homes in the uk 2.6 million homes so imagine how many people that affects are classified as poor quality and that costs the nhs 1.4 billion pounds a year in terms of the health impacts that that brings and 50% of that is due to the exposure of residents to excess cold and we've created that as a sector right we've created those homes obviously the climate is changing the extreme of temperatures is changing we get equally with a problem in winter but we also have problems in summer with extreme heat especially in, in France where i live but fixing that as an issue will pay back in 7 years and bring 15 billion pounds of savings so if we can't convince people on the climate on the carbon agenda or on the energy efficiency piece then you know i think bringing health into that conversation and people really understanding how the choices they make at home you know the energy they use the the, the goods that they buy it's all very kind of down the road isn't it in terms of you can't see it it's very difficult when it's out of sight to really quantify what that means but we're seeing carbon footprinting on our flights on our foods on our homes now these sorts of statistics can't be ignored and now with the increasing awareness of impact on of our surroundings on our health i think it's going to be much more insight in mind that's my hope in any case wendy air quality is one of those things as well i think air quality yep yeah, absolutely so if you're in a house i mean i won't use this one because we renovated it so hopefully it's a bit better <laughs> the house next door let's say a little bit leaky um you know it means that you're losing the heat that you're paying for in the winter but it also means that you're you're kind of receiving air um into the into the home that might not be of great quality in offices and schools some um some buildings will have monitors to monitor on a regular basis the quality of the air um and there are systems of course with filters like active systems to make sure that the air is um is 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 a high level of of quality and and actually the the level and the and the condition the quality of the air can affect productivity it can affect sleep it can affect all sorts of things um into throughout our our entire lives so there's a there's a bit of um a, a conversation happening in the industry at the moment because you know because of the the situation we're experiencing with the covid pandemic and the need to change the air within the spaces particularly within public spaces and in hospitals and things like that and offices that's a bit that's more energy intensive because we have to constantly change the air and yet it is for the benefit of health so it's a constant kind of play off but it doesn't necessarily mean to need to mean less efficient you can still do that quite quite efficiently um the concept of what we consider under health or under the topic of health is is also broadening um into more of a conversation about social values so in terms of green buildings you know in the past we've we might have considered health to be purely about indoor air quality or the amount of daylight that you get or the sound quality um but now it's really extending into that social value of the 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 benefits and the conditions of the workforce on a construction site or the supply chain and how the materials have actually made it to the project that you're spending a lot of money on so um yeah there's a, there's a huge i think we can have a whole another session Stephen and and Pete about health and well-being and how our buildings affect our health as there's a huge amount to consider there Brilliant Victoria thank you so much and Wendy thank you for your questions as well. Now one of our favorite episodes uh, so far of the Constructive Voices podcast is our women in construction uh, episode and uh, good to see so many women in construction at this event today. Uh, but 
One of those who took part in that very uh, interesting discussion with Henry uh, is with us today on our panel, uh, Samele Aruafor. Hello, welcome. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. A pleasure um, listening to everyone and all the insights that you've shared. Um, so I'm Sumele Aruafor. I'm an associate member of the Royal Institute of British Architects, and I am passionate about building performance design. Um, I apply my passions in my role as a senior strategic marketing manager at Trimble SketchUp the 3D modeling tool. Um, and I create content and campaigns that enable AEC professionals to leverage technologies that will then help them design a more sustainable built environment. And Trimble Solutions kind of support that. We deliver insights that solve physical world problems in like the construction sector, agriculture, geospatial and transportation. Anyway, some context for my question for Victoria. So the impact of, you know, the built environments embodied and operation operational emissions is unavoidable. It's just there, right? It's a chunky number. Um, and we as architects and professionals in the AC industry are uniquely positioned to positively impact the day-to-day of people, communities, economies, and the entire global climate. And I feel like we all have the responsibility to go beyond minimum, right? Like just like Victoria has been outlining. And so um, your feedback and your insights from from COP26 um, is encouraging. Um, I've seen summaries from people like Ed Masria at Architecture 2030, um, um, some of our customers like uh, Patrick Thibodeau, people who are actually on the ground doing the work daily. Um, but <laughs> not everyone is on board, right? So my question is how and how quickly can the urgency, the global urgency that we all feel um, around climate change, how can that spark a collective transformation in the way that AEC professionals, particularly architects, how can it spark a change um, that causes them to embrace the innovative technology that's out there and the diversity of thought um, that is required to actually deliver that more sustainable built environment. And if there's anything that we can do, what can be done to bring that change about more rapidly? Okay, huge question. Thank you, Stephanie. I think, um, and, and I'm fortunate to have some experience, as I mentioned um, myself, um, from from sort of previous roles as as advising uh, as a sustainable design consultant on you know the types of projects that you're talking about. And my kind of, I guess, dream being a sustainable design consultant would be that there was not a future for a sustainable design consultant, that every project wouldn't need someone else sitting around the the project table, right? That this is embedded into what the architects, engineers, everyone involved in that project team is working towards. And I think that's what Net Zero can do. And the 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 AEC community, um, you you kind of have two choices, right? You can wait for regulation to Mm. require the projects to deliver against enhanced performance and wait for the clients to set the brief, or you can use every project as an opportunity to educate the clients to kind of set, um, reset the standards, right, of of what needs to be done because uh, because inevitably your briefs that you'll be receiving now will not be for net zero buildings. And the the companies that we work with on under the commitment and, um, you know, more broadly within the the Green Building Council community and, and, for example, organizations that sit on World GBC's corporate advisory board see it as their duty to educate clients as to what can be done. So again, adopting that brief saying, okay, I hear what you're asking for. Here's what we can deliver you. And we've heard stories about companies or engineers saying that we will uh, offer a net zero design at no extra cost to our client, no matter what the brief says. It's our duty to supply, to like hear your brief and give you back a net zero design for that brief. Right. Or, um, a dual design that says we're going to design with the materials that you think you want and we're also going to design at our cost the design a lower embodied carbon option I'm thinking of, a, of a, an airport project in Cebu in the Philippines um, these this client in particular wanted a, a kind of undulating wavy roof design and the the end the uh, architects from Hong Kong designed an option with in timber and also one within steel and concrete, when it came down to it, the client went for the timber option because of the constructability, the buildability of it. And the program, by the time it would take to to build this building, it was typhoon season, the kind of setting for time for the concrete, the scaffolding implications, it wasn't an option. 
So they actually went for the lower embodied carbon option, not because of the lower embodied carbon implication, but because of the buildability of that project. Mm -hmm. So it's extremely powerful to take that role on as an educator to clients, right? And show what's possible. I could talk about this for ages. <laughs> I'm going to try not to, Steve. Um, but for me, what we're seeing is that it's no longer the responsibility of just the architect to deliver the client a net zero building. It's not a case of the architect designs, you know, the kind of interim, the initial design, hands that to an engineer to make it net zero. Mm. It's everyone's collective responsibility. And setting a target on a project is really powerful because it makes everyone contribute towards achieving that project and understanding the impact of even the structural engineer of you know how this building is going to be built when you start to considering starting to consider carbon targets for that project. And there's a few contractual changes that we're seeing as well that helps with this. Like usually within the UK, you'd appoint the architect, you'd then appoint the engineer, you'd then appoint the contractor and so on. Whereas in the US, there's much more collaborative models that say everybody comes together at the same time. And then everyone gets a kind of profit and loss share in how close we are to achieving the outcomes of that project once you're sort of a year into the operations. So you're actually focused on how the how the building will actually perform at the at the end of it so i think that collective uh, responsibility the collective obligation of the sector to educate clients before the regulation is here and it's coming i promise um will help both position yourselves but also uh, the, the clients to make sure that uh, that the buildings are set up for the future and this this target being based on whole life carbon as i mentioned earlier helps sort of separate the concepts of of capital cost and whether something costs more net zero should not cost more versus whether you will receive that benefit for the lifetime of that building and, and what you are contributing to the world in terms of that built asset will that built asset contribute to the world in 60 years time not just today so would you say that by showcasing these um these possibilities that more and more uh, professionals will take it on. I mean, if if you've worked with multiple uh, team members, stakeholders across like engineering and, and building and design, and they've experienced the best of what we can deliver as a, as a as a profession today, and then you work with another architect and they're not thinking about it, do you think that that will spur on more and more of us to take it on and actually jump? and do the work that needs to be done to get, get to yeah. more sustainable building. Absolutely. I think, um, I can't remember who mentioned this, whether it was, was Henry or Neil, but it, the sector is notoriously resistant to change, right? And so, you know, any of those kind of just sort of small, what if we did this or what if we did that and kind of just constantly questioning the, the business as usual, um, then you know, it helps unlock ideas and, and solutions that might not have been considered if you just sort of continued on the path that of least resistance, if you like, that people are used to. Victoria, thank you very much. Sumali, thank you very much for your excellent questions as well. And we're going to, uh, obviously, we've been focusing on the construction industry. That is what we focus on, on Constructive Voices. But Sangeeta Waldron uh, joins us now. And I know your focus, Sangeeta, is about all types of business. It is. Thanks, Steve. Um, Thank you, Victoria. I've really enjoyed a lot of the conversation. I've also learned a lot. And I feel heartened by some of the things you've said. So I'm um, I'm author of a book called Corporate Social Responsibility. It's not public relations. And it's um, it's letting all businesses know, irrespective of sector, that authentic corporate social responsibility needs to now be baked into the business strategy and the brand uh, because corporate social responsibility is the future of the world of business. So my question, Victoria, and forgive me because you might have touched on some of these already, um, but at COP26, um, Prince Charles talked about private corporations really leading um, in this fight against climate change and that we need them to be investing in renewable energies. We need them to be investing in technology. So how do we get more global businesses in the global construction sector to actually scale up quicker because we don't really have decades to get this done we're running out of time and is there a way to do it where um, those companies that are greenwashing um, are not being authentic with their builds and you know their purpose can that can we actually 
penalise them like we do at the the Hague when people are uh, creating international crime? Can we do something like that where it's not just based on goodwill and people being encouraged, but we're actually penalising people, we're making it mandatory? So that's my question. Yeah, we've mentioned a little bit about the private sector and the the kind of role, the obligation of the private sector to really be leading this charge. Um, and I do think it's a it's a kind of it's a necessary part of that process of that component. The private sector has to demonstrate what's possible. We cannot simply wait for regulation. We've been waiting far too long for regulation to to kick in. Um, it is an extremely complex area, and naturally, policymakers have all sorts of different priorities and obligations. There are cities that are moving faster in terms of city level um, policies, which is a good sign. So if you are a business wanting to build in that city, you have to do more than if you were going to build in a different city or different part of that same country. I think from a corporate social responsibility point of view, um, you know, it used to be something that would potentially provide competitive edge. and now it's becoming even more of an obligation that actually if you don't have CSR or you don't have transparent reporting of your impacts, then, you know, why not? It's sort of a really, really questionable. Um, World Green Building Council published at COP a report that we called Beyond the Business Case. We set out to kind of refresh our business case report, which is called the Business Case for Green Buildings from 2013. So it's in desperate need of of, uh, of refreshing from all the reasons that we've talked about today, broadening scope, increased urgency. We set out to write this report because we thought we were going to have to convince the world that it might cost more, but that there's other things like social value and expectations of the public. That means that you should be um, considering this anyway, that you should be investing in a sustainable built environment. And ultimately what we produced was a report that says there is irrefutable evidence for the broader value proposition for a sustainable built environment that you can't afford not to invest in a more sustainable built environment because we found that the drivers for the business case were increasing that the business case is getting stronger but then there is also drivers for social value and the social value case as well and it is less about whether you're doing it, whether you're doing something, whether it's CSR reporting or ESG or setting targets, um, it's the risk of not doing it. And the risk mitigation consideration against future trends or even existing trends that we expect to continue, like policy change, for example, and like carbon pricing, there's a huge section in the report on carbon pricing, that is effectively what you're talking about here in terms of penalising, because if organisations are just tracking or are just seeming to track and not taking action to reduce, then they ultimately will feel that when carbon pricing comes in. And what we're seeing is organisations already setting internal carbon taxes to really hold themselves to account. Different departments almost in competition with each other about who can build a building with a lower carbon impact because of the implications on a carbon tax that might go into an internal carbon fund and then be used to... Um, invest in more sustainable development projects or or outside of their own boundary, for example. So again, we're definitely seeing it happen, but it's far too few. It needs to really ramp up. And what this report says that at the risk of an imminent carbon pricing model or a carbon tax model, then it's something you can't afford not to do. And again, that's how we're seeing the narrative shift. We used to be asked a lot about the business case. We're asked a lot less. Well, that's why we did this report. Now that we've published it, we're asked a lot less about the business case because it seems like it's just becoming you know embedded that it's just something that has to be done and in fact you'll be asked more about why you've chosen not to do it than giving kudos for choosing to do it if that makes sense thank you thank you it does yes i think we've just got a long way to go still because we're relying a lot on goodwill and uh, we just need people to to do it we just need businesses to be better in what they're doing I think we the more that we can prove it through the various case studies and and sort of uh the anecdotal evidence of organizations who are living this I mean I think from to uh to Samelo's point earlier you know we're seeing from from the commitment um companies who are taking it on them upon themselves like design and engineering firms who are taking it upon themselves 
themselves to carry out the carbon footprinting calculations for their clients to be able to inform them better. It, it's being equipped with that knowledge, right? Do you know, are you, do you realize that if you change this design, if you add more glazing to this building, this is the impact it will have on your building. And that can happen now real time in project meetings, which is extremely powerful. So it's really increasing that in terms of knowledge, being able to quantify it and having that data to be able to say, we can model this for you. The report that I mentioned includes um, a future scenario modeling section that sets out basically under different scenarios of the IPCC report, a 1.5 degree scenario or a three degree scenario, that even in a 1.5 degree scenario, there will still be impacts from extreme weather on buildings and infrastructure and that sustainable assets are going to be more resilient with lower costs from those climate impacts. So there really isn't a situation where it doesn't make sense not to invest. And that's starting to come through from investors already, which is, yeah, where it needs to come from, really. Brilliant. Victoria, thank you so much. And Sangeeta, thank you for your question as well. Now, we have heard so much uh, from our panellists and from Victoria. I'm sure that that Henry MacDonald has um, at, at least one more question to ask, having heard everything we've heard today, Henry. Yes. Um, I was interested in when her, when she mentioned the pandemic, because one of the byproducts of the pandemic is working from home. Millions of workers are not going to return to buildings. That might be a, a permanent feature of the world of work, which means lots of empty buildings in cities all over the planet. Will that enable building recycling or what impact do you think it will have environmentally? Yeah, so I guess two big considerations there, right? First of all is what we do with homes because of the consumption of homes you know the the carbon footprinting of organizations will be focused on their real estate assets and what they can control in terms of their commercial real estate portfolio which is often you know completely different in terms of performance and efficiency compared to homes you know the world stopped we stopped traveling we stopped commuting we were all working from home Yet emissions barely changed. They came down by maybe 10, 12%. That's because we were still using buildings, right? And we were using those, we were using different buildings. We just moved our operations. So there is definitely, you know, a, a challenge there from what we do about the, the residential stock. If more people are going to be using their homes more during the week compared to the kind of typical usage and consumption profile, then there's the challenge of what we do with the buildings that are within the cities how we can repurpose those um how we can ensure that they're still attractive for people to come into work again from a health point of view and making buildings sort of more commutable to and different modes of transport to be able to get to the office and desirable right to travel to and once people want to choose to spend that time within their offices if given the option of flexibility ultimately we want people to choose to to be able to work in those spaces so I think there'll definitely be a change in that profile. It's now how we address that in terms of the emissions. Um, and if necessary, how we can look to repurpose those those buildings if they will no longer be used for their for their intended purpose. Um, and of course, we're seeing examples of that popping up all over the place. Uh, what happens to those buildings that may be permanently unoccupied? Do they need to be shut down in order not to be emitting energy emissions, all that? Yeah, so I think one of the reasons that emissions didn't come down as much was because those buildings were empty, but still using energy, right? They're still kind of locked into a, a consumption or, or a kind of programmed consumption pattern that meant that they were still being, you know, heated and and uh, and lit in terms of the internal servicings services. If those buildings really have no future. I can't really imagine a, a, a scenario where they would have absolutely no future. We've got buildings in, in Folkestone where I am at my parents that are being repurposed already because the, the occupiers of those buildings shut down. And there's all sorts of creative ways that these spaces are being reused as, as kind of needs to be. Um, you know, I guess if there really is a scenario where a building is completely closed but has no future as a building, then then you know, the option for that really is to to kind of consider, as we were talking earlier about circular economy, this uh, this concept of buildings as material banks, like those materials are there, those assets are there, and how can they be repurposed? How can buildings be deconstructed, not demolished, <laughs> deconstructed and the, as many materials recovered as possible to be reused? Um, you know, some of the, the uh, International Olympic Committee projects for future Olympics build in what they call legacy and that kind of 
that makes you kind of really think about buildings as a product rather than as a, you know, as an asset, as a useful product that can still be used. The legacy projects of the Olympics say, you know, we need to build this huge stadium for a time, but only for a limited time. How can we then deconstruct part of the stadium and repurpose that somewhere else? Um, and so that concept of repurposing buildings, maybe not as buildings, you know, the asset itself, but maybe the breaking that down and the materials or the systems or the components of that building for use somewhere else that would be more constructive if that was, yeah, if that was the ultimate outcome. Victoria, thank you so much. Um, before we finish, and because we've had so much of your time, I think it's only fair as you've answered so many questions from other people just to say, is there anything you want to say uh, without a question, just anything you might want to add to, to close the session? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I've, uh, I've tried to incorporate as much as what I want to say within my answers, but we did leave COP26 hopeful. We we did everything we possibly could to make sure that this sector is, is recognised as a critical solution to the climate crisis. So we've done our part, as it were, as it were, at COP. We are on those stages championing for this sector as a solution. And that means that we now need to step up as an industry, the practitioners, to do the things that we say are possible, um, that we're hearing are possible from the majority of the stakeholders. Um, there are some challenges, you know, we've been challenged today on some of the, the kind of remaining barriers within the sector, but they are decreasing all the time. And ultimately, it becomes a choice. It becomes a choice whether to build a resource-intensive project or a choice to build something that is fit for the future. And you know, it, it, it you know, we're constantly um, seeking to help help the industry overcome those barriers uh, to um, to understand what challenges you're facing. So, if you are working on projects and you're on the ground and you're um, you know, you're hearing the same thing over and over again from your clients. Tell us because we want to hear that. We want to know why, you know, why is it that we sort of pitch at COP26 and at these sort of big high level meetings that this is a solution and an opportunity. And yet it's not, you know, we're hearing on the ground that it's still not happening in the in the, the scale and the level that it should be like. We need to hear that so that we can help you overcome them. And that brings us to the end of our second special episode of Constructive Voices. Our event on the 24th of November was certainly one not to be missed. But if you did miss it, well, at least you've been able to catch up here on the podcast. We have a lot of special events lined up for 2022. I know you won't want to miss them. The best way to keep in touch is to sign up for our newsletter, which you can do at constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash, constructive-voices.com. And of course, keep listening to the podcast because we'll tell you when those events are coming up as well. Subscribe or follow to get these episodes automatically using your favourite podcast app. And until next time, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Mm-hmm.